want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 42. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is you runway 4 left, wind 0, 4, 0, and 5. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude is zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Viper check. Two. So welcome to the podcast. This is a three-part series, and we're going to be talking about Pyro, who is a squadron mate of mine. 2014, exactly seven years ago, he made the ultimate sacrifice and lost his life in a mishap while we were deployed in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. You know, the whole reason of doing this is my hope that I can play some small part in helping continue his legacy, although he doesn't need me to do that. But his family has a foundation they started after uh, he passed, and it's Pyro's Wings. You can go over to pyroswings.com, and they help young men and women who are pursuing their aviation career get in the cockpit and get some air up underneath them. Again, you can find a lot about Pyro and his life and his legacy over on pyroswings.com. But as I mentioned, this is a three-part series. So the first part of episode 42 is going to be me going through the AIB. That's the Accident Investigation Board. The goal behind that is for those who aren't familiar with the mishap, to at least provide a background of what Blitz and I talk about in part two. And then part three, it's like herding cats, but I was able to wrangle a couple of my former squadron mates who were spread across the globe doing different things. And they all shared just a short um, clip about Pyro and a memory they have of him. So again, if you're familiar with it, uh, part two is probably where you want to start. Part one is me just going through the accident investigation board which I try to be as objective as possible. Maybe I spread a few thoughts in there about it, but the AIB is very, it's straightforward. It is looking not at the person. It's looking at what happened and going through every aspect from the aircraft life to Pyro's life, trying to figure out what happened. And then part two, Blitz, he was our commander while we were deployed. He's able to shed a little bit more light from a commander's perspective as far as what was going on in the squadron beforehand and during uh, the deployment. So with that being said, I will just say one more time, if you're looking to support a good cause, pyroswings.com. You can swing over there, learn a little more about pyro and support a good cause. But with that being said, let's get into part one with me going through the AIB. This is part one of the series. 
This episode series is all about Captain Will Pyro Du Bois. He was a squatter mate of mine and the Gamblers in 2014. That's December 1st, 2014. So seven years ago today, he lost his life in an accident while we were deployed in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. So part one of this is going to be the Accident Investigation Board. Part two, I sit down with Blitz, our commander at the time, and hopefully shed a little more context to the whole environment we were operating into, both leading up to and during the deployment. And then part three, I have several gamblers who joined in and shared a story about Pyro. All this is hopefully to carry on Pyro's legacy. Pyro's family started a foundation in his honor, which is Pyro's Wings. You can go over to pyroswings.com. And their goal is to raise money and help young aspiring aviators get flight time and pursue their desire to fly combat aircraft. Again, that's pyroswings.com. And it's a great foundation to go out there and support young people who are trying to go out there and fly. So again, pyroswings.com is where you can find that if you're looking to support a good cause. But as I mentioned, this is a three-part episode. Part one, we're going to go through the Accident Investigation Board. And for some context and background, when a mishap happens in the Air Force, the Air Force does two things, a Safety Investigation Board and then an Accident Investigation Board. The Safety Investigation Board convenes first. It's comprised of a team of subject matter experts in their field, and that includes pilots, life support equipment, uh, technicians, maintenance technicians, medical, et cetera, all who are looking at every aspect of that person's life, the people who maintain the aircraft, et cetera, to try and figure out what happened. The goal of the Safety Investigation Board, broad brush, figure out if there's something that is occurring or needs to be stopped or a part that is breaking uh, prematurely or whatever it might be, that they can get that information out there quickly and get a fix out to the fleet quickly to prevent future mishaps. They have 30 days to complete their investigation and then report it to the convening authority. This is the Accident Investigation Board report, which is a second part that occurs following a mishap. Accident Investigation Board, again, comprised of a team of subject matter experts, and they're going out there to place blame, figure out what and who they need to point the finger at of why this mishap happened. This report I'll link it down in the description below, both on YouTube and in the show notes if you want to read it. It's 36 pages. It's black and white and rather objective. Blitz and I will talk about it and we'll read from it in part two. But this is going to be the meat of it in part one where I'm going to go through the Accident Investigation Board and try to give a little insight and break it down. I'm not going to go through everything, but we'll skim through it. And if you want to read it for yourself, you can find the link down below. So with that being said, let's get into the AIB. So the first page of the AIB is the executive summary. And it states on 1 December 2014 at 0458 local and 10 seconds to be exact. The mishap aircraft, an F-16 tail number 910375 was deployed to the 77th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron into a classified base of operation in U.S. Central Command Area of Responsibility. Impacted the ground 9.5 nautical miles southeast of the base of operation. The mishap flight was a combat mission in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. The mishap occurred in an unpopulated area. The mishap pilot did not attempt to eject from his aircraft and was fatally injured upon impact. The mishap aircraft was destroyed with a loss value at $30,796,000. The host nation forces recovered the mishap pilot's remains and transported him back to the base. The mishap caused neither civilian injuries nor damage to civilian property. Many domestic and international media sources reported on the mishap. On 1 December 2014, 
at 0421 local, so approximately 37 minutes prior to the mishap. The mishap flight took off. The mishap wingman experienced a landing gear door malfunction, requiring the mishap flight to remain near the base of operation, burn down fuel, and land. The mishap pilot unintentionally descended from 3,000 feet mean sea level to the ground, which was 1,680 feet mean sea level. The mishap pilot maneuvered the aircraft during the 32 seconds prior, but did not attempt to stop the descent until an abrupt pull away from the ground during the last second of flight, which was insufficient to avoid impact. The mishap pilot flew 1,000 feet below the minimum altitude prior to starting the landing approach, reducing the time to recognize and recover from the subsequent unintentional descent. With no radar control to expedite their combat mission, the mishap flight executed a common practice of joining the instrument approach inside the initial approach fix against published procedures. The mishap pilot did not attempt to eject from the mishap aircraft and died upon impact. The Accident Investigation Board president found by clear and convincing evidence the cause of this mishap was the mishap pilot's unrecognized descent into the ground resulting in controlled flight and terrain. Additionally, the AIB president found by proponents of evidence, the mishap pilot's initial intentional descent below the men-safe altitude significantly reduced the time available to recognize and respond to the unrecognized descent was a factor that significantly contributed to the mishap. So that's a lot to unpack there. Again, the AIB, as you can see, it's going through and it's spitting out factual data and it's getting through a variety of sources. But I think it's important to remember, right? We're talking about a person here who lost his life. Pyro who's a phenomenal aviator, an individual. And I can say if it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. And again, the goal here is we're going to dig through this and hopefully by the end of it, shed some light and some context behind what these numbers and what these words mean because when you just read it, it's very sterile, and there's a lot more, I think, that goes into it that's important. Let's skim through the next couple pages. On a lighter note, for all those who complain about me using acronyms, if you're ever curious about acronyms, swing through an AIB, because there's at least three pages of acronyms or four pages of acronyms that they break down for you. So very acronym heavy. All right, on the official page one, the summary of facts, it just goes through a couple points more legal ease. It says that Major General James N. Post, the Vice Commander of ACC, that's Air Combat Command, appointed Brigadier General Jeffrey Talaferro to conduct an aircraft investigation on the mishap that occurred on 1 December 2014. It gives the dates, and then it says the board is comprised of a flight surgeon, a pilot member, a legal advisor, a maintenance member, a recorder. Let's see, that looks like about it. Again, it's more or less just the facts does another accident summary. This rolls through the background of Air Combat Command, U.S. Central Command, 9th Air Force, 20th Fighter Wing, 77th Fighter Squadron, 77th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron, and then the base of operations, F-16, etc. So if you're curious about what those entities or things are, you can find those in the beginning of the AIB. On the page three, the sequence of events says the 77th, Expeditionary Fighter Squadron was deployed to a classified base in October 2014. The mishap pilot had been flying at this base since 14 October 2014. Prior to the mishap, the mishap pilot had flown 18 flights, 17 of those flights occurring at some point during the night, and five where the mishap pilot landed at night. The mishap pilot's most recent flight landed three days prior to the mishap. The mishap flight consisted of two F-16s flying in support of Operation Hint Resolve. So to paint the picture here too, so Pyro's on the 
early go. So he's launching typically at uh, the early morning hour. And in this case, you know, 421 local, he's landing in the daytime. I was flying at night at the time. And again, Blitz and I talk about this. And later on, the AIB will talk about it. But this base was really dark. The runway lighting was not great. The environmentals here were challenging to say the least. And Pyro is typically landing during the day, taking off at night. Although it does say a little later, later on, he has had a couple night landings. But for those that know and have flown at night, obviously when you can't see things as well as the daytime, it's more challenging. Depth perception, things like that. And again, in this environment here, it was a very dark base and the runway lighting was not great. So the chances of having some kind of disorienting situation I think are higher than most. Mishap Pilot received a local area orientation academic briefing with the rest of the 77th EFS as part of our deployment preparation training. In that LAO, it briefed and trained personnel on the base, airfield operation, local flying procedures, instrument approaches, etc. Another aspect of this too, everyone does an LAO. You kind of get told by the previous squadron what to look out for. Pyro was one of those guys who went, he got a LAO ride from, I'm pretty sure someone from the squadron we were ripping out. And then Pyro was in subsequently as an instructor pilot, he was giving those local area orientation flights to fellow gamblers as we were rolling into the AOR. And I do remember too, like Pyro, it seemed like he was dropping every single time he was doing one of these LAO flights. So he was pretty busy doing that. But again, kind of speaks to who Pyro was. He's an instructor, very experienced guy. But again, it's just kind of going through everyone gets an LAO and it's the basics of what's going on in the field. Blitz and, again, Blitz and I, again, will talk about some of the airfield differences. So my job at the time was a standard evaluation liaison officer, the CELO. So dealing with instrument approach plates, books and things like that was something I was responsible for. And the instrument approach that we flew back to this base, to the primary runway, again, lighting wasn't great. There was information on the plate that was incorrect, but it was just one of those things that was known and passed down. So again, it's something that wouldn't have been accepted probably stateside, but ISIS had just popped on the map. Everyone is just running full speed. You're accepting some risk and some operational risk, whereas you normally probably would not have, or you would have cleaned up those items sooner because you had more time to do it. But again, challenging scenario. Now, a pilot can use an instrument approach procedure to fly a route from a one geographic location or fix to another location until a position to land. An instrument approach procedure normally begins at an initial approach fix, then progresses closer to the airfield at a lower altitude to intermediate fix, and then the final approach fix. In this mishap, the mishap pilot used an instrument landing system, an ILS approach. The ILS provides the pilot's precise lateral and vertical guidance from the final approach fix into landing. So basically all I was saying is when the weather is bad or if it's at nighttime, i.e. it's difficult to see, pilots use instruments to get from point A to point B. And then as you get to point B, you need to get to the airfield. You can use an instrument approach system with onboard navigation equipment to both descend and then orient left, right to line up with the runway and safely land when you can't see and the visibility is low and the ceilings are low or it's just nighttime. 
So an ILS provides you both that vertical and lateral guidance. The men's safe altitude within 25 nautical miles of the field provides a thousand feet obstacle clearance, which I'll mention the men's safe altitude quite a bit, or the AIB does quite a bit here. So a thousand feet above anything, the highest obstacle within 25 miles of the field is the men's safe altitude. The 77th leadership uh, produced a pilot read file on 13 October that outlined expectations for landing at the base of operations if an instrument approach was required. The pilot read file is a collection of guidance issued by the squadron commander and the DO, and pilots must read it and sign off prior to flying. And it directed pilots to fly direct to the IAF at or above a document min-safe altitude until receiving final approach guidance. And why is this important? So operating in most places in the world that are busy, you're going to have a radar approach control facility or a RAPCON or TRACON departure. Some, there's going to be some kind of air traffic control that is watching planes on radar and guiding them, usually from the last point of their flight plan or some waypoint onto some segment of the approach via radar vectors. There was no radar control where we were operating. So you had to navigate yourself onto the approach. Now you can do that by starting at an initial approach fix and flying a full procedure. Flying a full procedure approach just takes longer versus a radar vector to intercept some segment of the approach usually cuts off a few minutes um, and you're typically intercepting that at like a 45 degree angle. So if you think of a straight line coming off a runway, draw it 20 miles out from the runway center line, you're typically going to intercept that on a 45 degree heading to line up until you can receive navigation guidance and fly to the runway. If you can't do that, in this case, I don't have the approach anymore. I'm pretty sure we had to fly an arc. So you'd have to intercept like a 20 nautical mile ring around the field, fly that ring all the way around until you could intercept that straight line to the runway. Again, it just takes longer. So if you don't fly that full procedure, the only other way is then to self vector yourself onto some segment of the approach. So on 1 December 2014, the mishap pilot mishap wingman attended their required intelligence brief and then conducted their standard flight brief. They dressed, they stepped up to the top three desks, they got their notums, which is notice to airmen's, any kind of procedure changes, weird things that are going on or differences that ATC or the field releases that you need to know, i.e. like a runway closure. They got their briefing about the aircraft, weather, etc. The time of takeoff weather was 9,000 meters visibility with mist. Winds were very well at three knots. Temperature was 43.39. So the illumination was 1.66 millilux. For comparison, two millilux is the equivalent of a moonless clear sky. 270 to 1,000 millilux is the equivalent of a full moon. And they're 1.66. So it's really dark. And again, I can test to this is some of the darkest, this is the darkest place I've ever flown. I mean, it's that dark. It just makes it tough to operate and do things. Moving along, they were issued all their requirement, their required gear. They're flying a, a two tank jet. So two 370 gallon wing tank jet. They have four 500 pound bombs, four air to air missiles. They have a sniper pod, uh, electronic countermeasure pod, and then a harm targeting system pod as well. During the pre-flight pyro, he had an issue with his hydraulic system. He shut down. They had to do maintenance on the aircraft. Mishap wingman, he went ahead and taxied once he was good to go, which is normal procedures. He got to the arming area so the arming crew can go and arm up his jet, and he just waited on pyro. So nothing abnormal there. It's a relatively common thing to have happen. At 421 uh, local, the flight took off in a radar trail. 
So radar trail, wingman's going to fly two, three nautical miles in trail with a radar lock on the flight lead, doing this at night or in the weather when visibility is either uh, not there or is limited. You'd fly radar trail until you can ensure you can maintain visual and then move out to a wedge or line of breast formation, again, depending on the visibility there. However, once airborne, the mishap wingman attempted to raise his landing gear but was unable to do so uh, due to gear door malfunction and immediately radioed to Pyro and formed him the situation. Pyro directed the flight to orbit over the base at eight to 10,000 feet and passed the tactical lead to the wingman. Uh, that way he could just troubleshoot his issue. So Pyro is now flying chase off of the wingman, uh, allowing him out there to sort uh, his jet, go through the checklist, work the issue there. So he was able to extend his gear in a normal configuration and no other malfunction existed. They decided to leave Bear, which he's the wingman, out front with his gear down, which, again, is a normal thing there. Pyro coordinated with the ops supervisor and the tower to go burn down fuel holding above the base in order to reduce the fuel weight. During the process, uh, the mishap flight employed liberal use of the afterburner, which I do remember walking back from the bathroom to expedite fuel consumption. The plan was to land as soon as possible so that the mishap flight could step to the spare, launch, and get to their area of operations and support their vol. While holding over the base, the mishap pilot expressed concern to the mishap wingman that due to the pre-dawn hour, the mishap flight was likely waking up base inhabitants. And I would say super considerate of, of Pyro there. They're holding it high key, which is, especially for a single engine plane, every base is going to have a high key, which is the spot you're going to go to if you're having an engine-related problem to glide back down to the base and land. It's also a free piece of airspace to kind of go troubleshoot, especially at this time of day. Pyro coordinates for the tower for clearance to move to the east, approximately 20 nautical miles away from the base uh, to waypoint one. And they continue to burn down fuel for approximately 10 minutes. The next part is the radio transmission between Pyro and the tower, which if you're operating in normal airspace, this radio call would have been between Pyro and most likely approach control or center, but he's talking to tower. Towers only really care about what's around the three nautical mile ring, roughly around their piece of uh, real estate. They don't care about you out at 20 nautical miles, nor can they see you unless you're at a big airport with some fancy radar. Uh, but even then they don't care when you're 20 nautical miles away. So they're operating in an environment with no radar control. That's all I'm trying to illustrate there. But here's the radio transmission. Pyro requests to send to 4200 to intercept ILS, runway 31 full stop. Tower, eh, Roger, report localizer established. So we're, we're dealing with a different country here. Language barriers, despite the fact that they can speak English, they're definitely language hurdles that have to be overcome. And just the communication piece is more challenging than normal. All right, between 4.52 and 4.54, Pyro made several radio calls informing the top three, our operations supervisor of the flight's intent to land, directing the wingmen to begin the en route descent to the south. So Pyro has kicked Bear out front. He's maintaining the lead. He's chasing him. He's going to let Bear land first. In case Bear has to go around, he can go around with him and support him. So that's a lot of flight leadership and standard practice. So Pyro made three 60-degree banks with little heading change in what appeared to be an attempt to gain a radar lock on the mishap wingman at 454 local. So it doesn't go into any further detail there. But basically, Pyro has banked his jet up 
60 degrees three times trying to get a radar lock. Maybe that was his intent. Maybe he was intending to sweep his nose and actually pull some heading change to increase or to move his radar field of view to get a radar lock. We don't know, but 60 degrees of bank at night is very steep. 30 degrees is a standard rate turn. Exceeding 30 degrees is you really don't want to do that. And in fact, the book says don't do that because it can lead to spatial disorientation. I will say uh, I have exceeded 30 degrees of bank in the weather as well as at night in a fighter aircraft. It's very easy to do, uh, but it's one of those things that if you do it, it better be very deliberate because it can spatially disorient you and it doesn't matter how experienced you are. So the mishap flight maintained radar trail formation with the mishap pilot and trail. At 454 local, the mishap pilot descended through 5,000 feet mean sea level. Again, they're the ground is at 1,700 feet mean sea level, and directed the mishap flight to proceed west to waypoint three. The initial approach fix located 15 nautical miles southeast of the field on final. The radar tracks of the mishap flight show a course that continues inside the initial approach fix towards the intermediate fix, waypoint four. Upon completing, uh, or upon completion of this turn to the west, the mishap pilot lowered his landing gear and stabilized at 5,200 feet MSL for 48 seconds. Then at two, or 4.56 local, that's two minutes later, the mishap pilot made a 1.19 second call to the mishap wingman directing him to turn towards final. I will say as a random that they have 1.19 seconds. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's just like they want to show the detail there, but he made a radio call uh, to the wingman to turn towards final. The wingman remained in the front of the formation, continued his en route descent down to approximately 3,000 feet mean sea level. Again, this is roughly 1,300 feet above the ground and intercepted the localized course at approximately 10 nautical miles from the runway. Pyro maintained two to three mile trail throughout the descent, passing 4,000 feet at 456 local and leveled off momentarily at 3,500 feet mean sea level before continuing his descent. At 457 local, Pyro passed through 3,000 feet MSL. Again, that's 1,300 feet roughly above the ground. He was still heading west, and his throttle was near idle and a decent rate of approximately 2,700 feet per minute. I think I mentioned with Blitz, 2,700 feet per minute is very steep. It depends on what, you're wanting, what you need to do. If you need to get down, a fighter can do that, absolutely. But 1,300 feet above the ground, that's a pretty steep descent rate. So all he has, if he continues that decent rate, is 30 seconds before he hits the ground. Typically, an ILS approach, once you're established, your descent rate is going to be somewhere between 600 and 900 feet per minute. Again, it's going to depend on a couple of different things, approach angle, weights, et cetera. Uh, but he's at 2,700 feet per minute. And I only highlight that as that should be an intentional thing you're doing. Uh, I, you're high and you need to get down, so you're going you're gonna to steepen it up, but you're going to fix it and take that descent rate out. During the last 32 seconds of flight from 3000 MSL to impact, the mishap aircraft maintained a continuous descent rate, so he didn't adjust it. At 457 and 54 seconds, 16 seconds from impact, descending through 2300 feet MSL, again about 600 feet above the ground here, Pyro turned approximately 40 degrees to intercept the final approach course using up to 42 degrees of bank. So again, can you do it in a fighter? Absolutely use that much bank. Should you do it? No. And the book says you shouldn't do it. And it could be one of those things like maybe you're a little bit late and it's an intentional 
thing where you go to it, but 30 degrees is a standard uh, rate turn for instruments. So he's over banking here and it could be he is aware of what he's doing or it might be an indication that potentially is slightly disoriented as far as where, where he's at. My guess, pure guess, um, as we'll see here, he hasn't intercepted the glide slope based on how close he is to the base or where he is on the approach. He is most likely expecting to see the glide slope, the vertical guidance, giving him some sort of indication of where he is in relation to the glide slope. Um, at least I think that's where I would be trying to figure out where I am vertically as well and why that's not working. So that might be an, a reason why he overbanked there. Near the end of the six, uh, of this turn, six seconds prior to impact, the mishap pilot called the mishap wingman on the radio to ask if he was receiving the glide slope. So again, no one knows what it was. That's just my best guess is, or at least I can imagine myself doing that very th same thing. I've done that and trying to spin brain bites, figuring out why the, the glide slope's not working, et cetera, uh, and something I goofed up. During the last second of flight, the mishap pilot initiated a 4G level pull away from the ground. However, this action was executed too late to avoid impact with the ground. So the wingman, Bear, he continued the approach. He landed, and then I know afterwards he was calling tower. He was calling the top three, trying to see where Pyro was because once he cleared the runway, Pyro never landed. So he was trying to figure that out. Next uh, couple pages, it discusses the impact Essentially, it's saying the jet, the engine was running at 83% RPMs. It had fuel, um, et cetera. So just the, the nature of what it was at, at impact there. Also, the weather, 2.68 millilux. So it had brightened up a little bit, but that's extremely dark. Again, 270 is where you're getting that visibility starting. Egress and aircrew flight equipment. So looked like the bracket for his helmet, all of that was in good working order. You don't use MVGs, night vision goggles to land. In fact, you have to remove them five minutes prior. Guys have landed with them in rare circumstances, but you don't have any depth perception when you use them. And also with that dark night, unknown how effective they would have been. But in the end, his MVGs and all of his, his gear uh, were in working order. We was on talks about the search and rescue. Uh, our, our host nation partners there, they they launch and we're able, able to recover, recover pyro quickly. It uh, goes through that. Talks about uh, a few other things: uh, recovery remains, the mishap site security, and what they did there. Then it goes into maintenance and digs through the forms, which is the aircraft documentation. Goes through the inspection intervals, procedures, maintenance personnel. All of that was found to be normal. There was nothing that was significant that would have contributed to the mishap. Normally, they do a fuel hydraulic uh, fluid and oil inspection, but all of that was destroyed. So they ruled that out. I think it's fair to make the assumption based on the, you know, he was not having any issues. He didn't radio any issues, but they can see his engine is running and operating normally, et cetera, um, just up to impact. So you can rule that out. I think it's fair to say. Again, the, the report just breaks down each different system, making sure that the flight data recorder is not showing any indication of any kind of system issue. So ground collisions avoidance system, 
our squadron, I think, was one of the first F-16 squadron, if not the first F-16 squadron to get uh, a GCAS, Auto Ground Collision Avoidance System, as well as F-16 unit that was deployed over to Afghanistan at the same time. And this part just talks about the fact that none of this would have worked for Pyro because his gear was down, which the jets thinking you want to land because that's what you do is you put your gear down. So it's not going to initiate a ground collision avoidance maneuver, but with the gear down, the only thing you're going to get is a flashing AL 2000 in the corner of the HUD, which is just altitude below 2000 feet above the ground, which you're not going to notice it. I'm not, I definitely wouldn't have noticed it or if you did notice it, it is a normal thing because you're expecting and you're anticipating to land. Next portion goes through the weather, just talks about everything we've discussed. Essentially, the weather is decent uh, on this night. It's just really dark. Then it goes through uh, mishap pilot, it goes through pirates, or it goes through pyro's qualifications. Again, pyro is a great pilot, very well respected in the squadron. He's an instructor pilot. I think most people would say he's like on the fast track. He's just a really sharp dude and knows how to fly the jet. Wingman, same deal. Then he goes into his medical history, pathology, crew rest, nothing of note or anything that stands out. Then he goes into the operations and supervision. The highlight this is his 19th flight at the location over a month and a half. His last night landing was 19 days prior to the mishap, and that was his fifth landing at the base during the deployment. And he's taken off on this flight anticipating to land in daytime and he hasn't landed at night. Not saying he can't do it. It's just one of those things. If you don't do it a lot, it usually takes a little bit to knock the rust off. So public instrument procedures provided sufficient guidance to safely fly the instrument approach to land at the base. The squadron leadership provided written guidance to all pilots that with instructions for night landings, emphasizing the need to start the instrument approach at the IF. Additionally, the supervisor reissued guidance two weeks later on the 25th of October, saying the same thing, essentially. Nevertheless, 77th EFS leadership was aware that some pilots did not adhere to these procedures. Instead of beginning the approach at the IAF as directed by the published instrument approach and 77th EFS instruction, several pilots utilized a method of joining the instrument approach closer to the final approach fix. This method was intended to compensate for the lack of radar control at the base of operations and could self-set up their own intercept or dogleg to the final approach course, which was closer to the airfield in order to land quicker. While not necessary service, while not a necessary service at many locations, radar approach control directs headings for pilots to follow vectors that allows them to start their approach close to the field, fly less of an instrument approach, and land sooner. Despite published leadership guidance to the contrary, this self-set approach by members of the 77th EFS was a common practice within the squadron. At a minimum, some pilots perceive that the 77th EFS leadership informal focus in regards to night procedures was to meet approach requirements by the FAF, which was 3,000 feet MSL, 5.4 nautical miles from the runway. So with this portion here, Blitz and I talk about it. Again, this is the factual findings of the AIB. We're a small squadron, approximately 20 people split half and half day and night. I'm a night guy. I find it interesting, and this is a subjective piece of Rain's opinion, where the board found that most of the squadron took a laissez-faire approach to this policy and would just self-set up for our own approach and ignore it, and also the fact that the leadership ignored it. So I was never interviewed for the AIB. I actually don't know 
who was interviewed for the AIB, but I don't think there were a lot of night guys who were interviewed for the AIB. So I take this with a grain of salt, but nonetheless, that's what they were doing. They were self-vectoring for the approach here. So Pyro utilized the self-setup approach during the mishap flight and did not start the instrument approach from the IF, as indicated by the published instrument approach. The mishap pilot's stated plan on the mishap flight was to begin the landing approach 3,500 MSL at 10 nautical miles, 5 nautical miles closer than IAF. The mishap wing was unable to recall all the specific altitudes the mishap pilot directed him to descend. Flight data retrieved from the mishap aircraft and ground radar sources indicate both aircraft continued approximately 3,000 feet MSL before being established on a segment of the instrument approach. Pyro directed the mishap wingman to turn to a dogleg to intercept the final approach course prior to receiving the localizer guidance and prior to being established on the approach. Which again, if you're self-vectoring your flight onto the segment approach, you're going to have to intercept a dogleg prior to receiving the localizer guidance. Otherwise, you'll never intercept it. The mishap pilot initiated his turn to intercept the final approach course approximately three nautical miles inside the IAF at 2,300 feet MSL. Again, that's 600 feet roughly above the ground, well below the published initial approach fixed altitude of 4,000 feet MSL or the intermediate fixed minimum altitude of 3,500 feet. Again, it didn't really surprise me because he's between the final approach fix and the intermediate fix. And so he's below or in between those altitudes there uh, for it. Intentionally flying below, intentionally flying 1,000 feet below the altitude at the IAF reduced his safety margin and time for the mishap pilot to recognize and recover from the descent. He had an average descent rate of 1,528 feet per minute from 4,000 feet MSL to impact. This additional 1,000 feet would have given him 39 seconds to recognize and recover from unrecognized descent. It says, however, it was not possible to discern whether the mishap pilot would have been able to recognize and recover from the descent with an additional 39 seconds. The next piece of the AIB goes into human factors. So the human factor one, it tagged was vision restricted by meteorological conditions. The mishap occurred at 458 and 10 seconds local. It was after moonset and prior to sunrise, so dark, 1.66 millilux. And witness testimony indicates that the external visibility was dark with minimal cultural lighting, nearly absent of visual cues at night. Also says night approach airfield lighting is not visible outside five nautical miles. I'll buy that. A second human factor, task prior task misprioritization. And the mishap pilot was qualified experience in instrument flying and executing cockpit visual scan patterns. The mishap pilot demonstrated an adequate instrument scan prior on the RTB. So everything is working fine. He's cognitive and doing everything right. It's just the end game that his scan pattern gets misprioritized. Um leading to the de descent. Human factor three is spatial disorientation, unrecognized, which is the most dangerous because you don't realize it's happened. But spatial disorientation, for those who don't know, is a failure to correctly sense a position or motion or attitude of an aircraft or of oneself within a fixed coordinate system provided by the surface of the earth and gravitational vertical. Spatial disorientation, type one, unrecognized, is a factor when a person's cognitive awareness of one or more of the following varies from reality, attitude, position, velocity, direction of motion, or acceleration. Proper control inputs are not made because the need is unknown. So again, not realizing that you're in a spot that you need to change something is very dangerous. The fourth one and final is human factor for risk assessment during operation. And then it 
it pins Misset Pilot's decision to send below the MSA, removed a safety buffer that would have given him extra time to reestablish altitude and awareness. Again, those human factors, very objective, uh, but again, tagging specific things to the AIB and to the mishap. It gives some publications that are relevant to the mishap. And then known or suspected deviations from directives or publications. It references the pilot read file by not starting the instrument approach on the IAF. The mishap flight deviated from uh, a couple different things of instrument flying rules, uh, and it references those. In this case, the min safe minimum sector altitude of 3,700 feet uh, MSL within 25 nautic miles. The mishap flight deviated below the air traffic control clearance by descending below their cleared altitude of 4,200 feet MSL prior to being established on a segment of the approach. The last part of this is the AIB president's summary. So for the summary, the board president says, by clearing convincing evidence, the cause of the mishap was the mishap pilot's unrecognized descent into the ground, resulting in controlled flight and train. And further, I find by preponderance of evidence, the mishap pilot's initial intentional descent below the min-safe altitude significantly reduced the time available to recognize and respond to the unrecognized descent was a factor that significantly contributed to the mishap. He goes on, which again kind of summarizes everything we just discussed. And then the conclusion, which was that descent that was unrecognized. So that's kind of a snapshot of the AIB. I'll leave it linked down below. If you want to read the AIB, again, it's very objective. It's black and white. Hopefully this puts a little context to it. Blitz, when we talk in the next part of the series here, I think that will shed more light onto it. But it's important to remember, you know, we're talking about a person. This is Pyro. And I'll say, you know, this scenario, it's one of those things that it can it can happen to anyone. It's important to learn from, from all of this, to recognize that, again, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, how good you think you are, things can happen, right? So respect it. And for me, you know, it's it's always one of those stark reminders that just how frail life is and how fast things can go sideways. We're talking matters of, of seconds here when you're when you're dealing with this type of stuff. So if you're looking to support a good cause, pyroswings.com. Again, I hope you glean something from this portion of the episode and over on part two, Blitz and I discuss the AIB, his perspective as the commander at the time, and then in part three, have some fellow gamblers join in and share stories of Pyro.